0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So much common space, common resources, public goods. Does capitalism work well when we have so much that is shared? One argument is that if you have a shared resource, the best way is to make one person in charge because they will have a vested interest in keeping it going. But we can't have one person in charge of the planet... And does that theory work out anyway? Is the solution to what's called the tragedy of the commons really just to privatise the commons? That's all today on the debunking economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, I think we all know the argument about the tragedy of the commons. That if you had a piece of common land and you allowed everyone to put their animals on it with no controls, then the land would be overgrazed, the animals would die, and everyone would lose their livelihoods. That's the that's the argument. I think this analogy can be applied to so many aspects of economics and it often ends up with the conclusion that the government should run everything, which, of course, given the governments we've had lately, is a very scary concept. There's another example in this scenario though, Steve, that, that someone owns that land and and rents it out, then he or she has the incentive to ensure that it isn't overgrazed. So the argument is to avoid the tragedy of the commons, you just hand it over to, to private ownership. That may, that might be the answer. It depends on the circumstances. It's a confusing picture, isn't it?
1: No, only if you. <laughs> it's only difficult because you don't look back and say, well, how were the commons managed? And the answer was the commons were managed. They were managed by the community uh, back in pre-capitalist days and uh, and that's why the commons works because anybody who ever grazed was was uh, you know admonished and ultimately expelled from the community uh, so there was a collective management of that of that collective resource, and yeah. um, and, again, and that, that's a bit like you know going back before the days of money, isn't it? When we were all living in, in, before in tribes. Before the days so of money, hang on a sec.
0: Which podcast is this? <laughs> you know, I'm sure we've done one on that, haven't we? But you know we you know we were we were tribes people, and well, we didn't yeah, have money. before the days we of had the, resources been,
1: before the days
0: of industrial civilization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and we, then in those days, we did what had to be done, and we would obviously look after the earth because uh, you know our, our, it wasn't a life it
1: was our existence that depended on it. So, yeah, but then and we were we the days of communes, almost. Well, that, it's actually I've got to actually read David Graver's final book, the uh, uh, the Dawn of Everything, uh, because I've I've got a lot of sympathy to some of David's arguments, but other parts. From what I've heard, I haven't actually had a chance to read the book yet. Um, I think he it looks like they, they he and uh, Rengro, uh, David uh, Rengro, I think it is. Downplay the pre, um, pre uh, sedentary civilizations and their degree of complexity. And ha- having been influenced by the book, that, the, the fictional series, The Clan of the Cave Bear uh, by Jean Ohl, which is actually, Jean Ohl actually financed a lot of the anthropologists who did the research into early Cro Magnon societies. And the book uh, basically puts that, that research into a fictionalized format. And a lot of that has this whole idea of a, a cycle of life, um, a, a realisation that you had to maintain the area where you were. So this idea of, of, of managing resources which are, which, which are known not to own uh, be owned by anybody in fact those resources of anything own us that's that's the mentality we began from so what has happened with neoclassicals and this whole idea of um, of the the so-called tragedy of the commons they've ignored the fact that the commons was managed by the community uh, in the in past uh, civilizations, uh, talked about it as if it's a it's a free for all, and therefore the free for all means commons get destroyed, and therefore you've got to hand the free for all over to somebody who's a monopoly, and that person will take over it because it's there as the source of income. Uh, it, it's all a distortion of the actual past history of commons. Well, what you're describing uh, is uh, what
0: Eleanor uh, Ostrom, an American economist mm-hmm. who won a Nobel Prize in economics, so that's probably possibly a bad start. Um, But she argued, you know, just what you've been saying, the Commons could be managed by the collective owners, not by top-down regulation, but by uh, the owners agreeing on choices, effective monitoring, having methods of conflict resolution. So a bit of a come-by-our approach, which sounds great. But if you take the Commons and apply at its highest level and call the planet the Commons… You know, it's not working, is it? Because that, we are that, it. That,
1: is, that is the serious issue that we do have. Uh, uh, you know, like, for example, the, the, a- the atmosphere. Um, we, we, it wasn't an issue when we weren't burning fossil fuels. It wouldn't be an issue if we weren't burning fossil fuels in, in many ways. We weren't using the amount of energy we use. Uh, but since we are, and, and then when you dump this stuff into the atmosphere, uh, then, yes, the effect is felt somewhere else. At the same time, I, I wonder if you really had a... Uh, a genuine uh, you know, tribal uh, attitude to how we manage resources, and you then had the development of something like the internal combustion engine versus, for example, electric, uh, would there have been a decision we can't have this polluting you know, monstrosity uh, made back in that, that uh, hypothetical uh, tribal uh a commons-oriented civilization, and we would have had a totally different de- direction of, develop- of technological development. Do you think so, or would
0: they actually go and know that this this is polluting, but that doesn't really matter because it's polluting uh, elsewhere? Because uh, the because the, the geography is a big part of this, isn't it? It's how big the commons is. So if uh, if you could do something in the commons to get more out of your patch of land, and it's not really what you do is detrimental to areas outside your patch of land, you're not going to care.
1: It it varies I mean again you've got to look at the civilization in which that occurred. you look at the Assyrians they were happy to kill uh, pollute uh, um, the land of other peoples and and, <laughs> and kill them as well. Uh, you look at the in, american Indian uh, civilizations they had a lot of respect. For, um, for in the Aboriginal and in, in Australian Aboriginals, we've got a, a history of respecting the rights of other communities because that's again expected to be reciprocated back. So the more warlike humans are, the less they care about what, what they do damage outside their own. Environment And there are variations in how warlike societies are. This is, again, part of the point that I know David goes into in that book. Uh, there's numerous ways in which you can organise human civilization, not just the ones that became dominant in the West. So, um, uh, yeah, I, it, I think it, it is feasible to consider that we would have the, uh, the intellectual and uh, emotional maturity to recognise that if we damage somebody else's area, then they're going to come back and damage us—the sort of tit for tat attitude—and you don't want to have that happen. You so you you, you respect not just your own uh, territory, but the territory of others. Yeah. But that's clearly what we're not what we're doing. No, and everyone—I'd argue—everyone I'd, I'd argue everyone becomes warlike if uh,
0: if push comes to shove, if the pressure's on for their own livelihood, uh, and uh, they're being put upon by others. Then uh, then, irrespective of the culture, everyone will become warlike. It's just that those cultures perhaps had not been exposed to the, to the need for it.
1: Yeah, and we and we're seeing that we're likely to start seeing that in spades now. So um, mm. that competition yeah, is going to get much more severe. Resource, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and you know, and it and it all comes from demand,
0: doesn't it? So, for example, uh, you know, the great example of the commons around the UK is the North Sea and the Atlantic and and fishing. You know, because that obviously is a a danger that you can overfish. The UK overfished cod. I mean cod volumes now being uh in, in the sea or about around the seas of britain are about a third of what they were in the 70s because we love our cod in the uk we destroy it with batter of course uh, and we and that's with regulations but the, the the reason for that overfishing is because demand was there and so uh, you so that is the, the the driving force you could say well okay do we actually need to control the amount of fish that's caught or do we actually
1: need to control the amount of fish that's eaten? You know, yeah, where does, t- if, well, if we're going to regulate the, it, where do we the regulate the number of mouths that are eating it. This is the other thing. We've allowed our population to treble in, in the last mm. uh, 50 or so years and that's you know, necessarily more than trebled the demand for food. Uh, therefore, we're exploiting the commons because we are the predator and the commons is the prey and we've grown without check. And, uh, and as, as a result, of course, we're going to uh, – the, the praise the numbers are going to decline. So we're, we're – uh, I mean, I was, what, what's the piece I, – I saw something quite remarkable today, and that's actually concerning Tasmanian uh, Atlantic salmon farms. And because of the increase in water temperature that's supplying even around Tasmania – uh, one of the one of the major producers has shut down three of its four main production facilities because the death rate uh, annual death rate of the fish has risen. I think from something which is pretty high to begin with, like it was eighteen percent to forty five percent of the fish die, and of course that causes all sorts of other catastrophic feedbacks. So you've got dead fish which don't exactly help the health of the live ones. Uh, the the cost the profitability disappears. So we are now seeing the impact of us. Uh, with, with the global tragedy of the commons and the thing which really pisses me off is the people who talk about the tragedy of the commons are the ones who've caused it neoclassical economists mm. but it, it's because of the, the, whether it's neoclassical
0: economics or whether it's just the, just the, the, the modern age and, and our demands we are placing so much demand on everything because of our drive for consumption you can, whether that's neoclassic economics or it, it's just human nature we demand more and more the more money we have the more money we spend the more we want the more we uh,
1: deplete uh, the oceans and uh, use up the resources on the earth yeah yeah so we're you know, we we are certainly seeing a tragedy of, of, of abuse of common resources and mm. um But, of course, the whole neoclassical idea is that if you whack property rights on them and the person with the property rights imposes a price, the price will end the the over-farming. But if you have this perennial pressure of growth which we've had, then you're going to continue encroaching on those uh, uh, common resources and depleting them. And so long as the breakdown of those is sometime in the far future, uh, you'll keep on doing it to the point of breakdown. Yeah, because of the geography, because the
0: because if it, I mean what you're saying, I think is that you know if, if you uh, overresource the, your uh, the commons, then you just try and make the commons that much bigger. So perhaps we just need one
1: person to own the planet, then Steve. Maybe then, <laughs> then your make Elon would jump way.
0: at the chance, don't you think?
1: Mm, well, because he wants to have lots of kids. This is maybe a slight problem about the overpopulation issue being another story. Um, so yeah, but it, it, this, uh, in, in some ways, ironically, the, the solution to this problem is uh, is, is a capitalist dictatorship, uh, which is in, in, a, in a weird sort of way. You Neoclassicals know, are anti; they want to have everything dispersed. They don't want to have um, uh, you know anything collective at all. So that's, that's like that paper we discussed last week about the Phillips curve. There is a continuum of firms, like an infinite number of firms. Um, uh, so, so, yeah their ideology and their recommendations are often in conflict yeah and then ability to regulate obviously
0: is uh i mean first of all you need to make sure you're introducing the right regulations clearly we didn't with fishing uh in the uk because that's been a, a disaster uh, but again it's geographically constrained i mean for the fish for example they, they don't um, they don't observe boundaries and if they did where would they put their passports? All sorts of questions there. <laughs> but the um, but you know even just on a on a on a global scale, if we say you know and, and, t- and it is the problem for climate change, isn't it? You know that often held argument. Well, why should we bother? Because China isn't you know,
1: or yeah. we're only a small per- small percentage of the problem. And then that explains the issue that, that we 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 have. I mean, the, again, the neoclassicals have underrated the importance of the, this very commons. they trivialise trivialised the dangers. So the price they're saying we should put on to solve the problem is solving a problem which is two orders of magnitude less than the one we're actually experiencing. Uh, but again, uh, they've, they've prevented the regulations uh, they and the fossil fuel interests, that it could stop us doing this over mining. So uh, we, we do are having a tragedy of the commons, but it's caused by people who first put forward the theory of the tragedy of the commons. <laughs> right. And how much of it is driven by marketing as well? So,
0: you know, uh, in the West, how much are we uh, laying the problems on other parts of the world? So we all want to drink coffee, for example. Western societies, you know, we demand that right to idle away hours in coffee shops so that places demand on coffee plantations and the value that we're placing obviously is, uh, is 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 good news for those countries where all that western money coming in is an order of magnitude different to what they do producing get producing other crops so they will just you know produce as much as they possibly can with without a long-term vision uh, because they need the money now you know and and, and the more you have a divide in society the more that long-term view for those people who don't have money will disappear. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see it time and time again, don't we? People just are trying to survive today. So the the long-term view, that uh, the Australian Aboriginals' view of the of the planet is is very different. You know, if if they if push came to shove and they were uh, really, uh, you know, ha- had to, had to survive and they could do stuff to survive at the expense of, uh, of tomorrow, they would have done it. But they weren't presented with that problem, whereas lots of the developing societies are now.
1: Yeah, we are we, living in what uh, Kenneth Boulding called spaceship Earth, rather than the um, cowboy co- cowboy Earth. Uh, so rather than op- open fields to exploit, we're we're now encroaching on ex- each other's territory. So conflicts over resources will become uh, exacerbated. Is the ownership of the commons the uh, the key question here then? So uh, how much because
0: how much <laughs> of the current energy crisis? would go away if we hadn't privatized energy companies because, you know, it might have meant that there's longer-term planning. For example, uh, one of the problems that we saw, and I think we've spoken about this on the podcast before, one of the problems for gas prices in the UK has been that uh, when all the gas companies were uh, were privatized, uh, or the gas company, I think, really, basically was privatized, uh, the, uh, the the new private enterprises weren't really that keen or, or didn't see the need to maintain storage capability because, I mean, that doesn't work for them. If there's a lack of demand, then they just put prices up. The cost of uh, maintaining storage capabilities would sort of like uh, even out those prices, which there's no interest for them in in that happening. So why provide this storage capability? But for the common good, you obviously need that because you do want to try and remove those those peaks and troughs. So that's a great example of why privatizing was, a, was an absolute disaster. But you can't just say anything that it uses... A common resource should be privatised because we'd all be living in a. Uh, well, you talked about capitalist dictatorship. There's danger of be living in a communist dictatorship.
1: Well, that's you yeah, that's not maybe not that much that that worry, but uh, but there's a. If you have a short-term profit motive brought into something which needs to be maintained for the long term, then it can be pushed to the point at which it breaks down. So one of my favourite examples Mm. was a a book called Water's Fall uh, by an Australian academic, Chris Scheele. Chris uh, was... uh, I, I hope chris is having a good time surfing somewhere on the planet he's very much an Australian surfy type personality but a tr- truly great historical researcher and he looked at what happened to privatization of water resources in australia and particular also sewerage which is part of the whole you now the, the water process too and his favorite example was the uh, the big pong that hit adelaide back in about the 1980s i think it was when a French company was given the rights to buy the sewerage system for adelaide and to increase their short-term profits they started to neglect maintaining the bacteria that break down the shit uh in the in the ponds and uh, at one point the bacteria had that's enough (laughs) that's too much shit for us the bacteria died you started getting anaerobic breakdown instead of aerobic breakdown and then because the ponds were in the uh, in, in the direction of the prevailing winds that blew over Adelaide for some several months, Adelaide just lit, quite literally stank. Um, so, the short termism, and this is a large part of what you're talking about when you hand over these things yeah. of public enterprises to private ownership, that short termism led to the total breakdown of that system. And uh, I don't know what's actually happened since then, so I don't know what they actually unprivatized them. But when you have something which has to exist for the long term, a good guideline is don't privatise it because the short-term profit motive will mean people neglect those things that make it uh, survive for the long term and it will break down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other aspect in all of that, again, you know, is
0: the, is the geography. that You know, you can be looking after a particular area but it, it has uh, spillover effects, <laughs> literally perhaps spillover effects to uh, uh, to neighbouring areas as well, which is the issue we face on the planet. But the, the energy crisis that we're in now, I mean, that... That is partially to do with ownership as well, isn't it? It's not an individual that's owning it, but it is a nation, uh, you know, with Russia behaving a bit like an individual or a company, isn't it? That we, you know, we don't want to deal with them. Uh, So imagine if we saw the answer that there was some sort of global agreement on energy, that that resources were available to all somehow. That's not going to happen, of course, but uh, would that make any difference? You know, if any... It could actually (laughs) make the problem worse. I mean, imagine if we could say... Anyone can drill in Saudi Arabia. Uh, imagine how we'd stuff that up. Uh, so, you know, having sort of uh, sovereign control maybe is a good thing, uh, if, you know, in that they are looking after the long-term, you'd hope, the long-term future of their own individual countries. But it's the spillover effect to other countries and to the, the global economy that is the issue, as we have seen with Russia. So, um you know the, the the ownership is is important and i'm just wondering whether actually uh, sovereign ownership really is that much different to, to to private ownership because you still have your own uh self-interest at heart
1: well i remember watching a, a, a great uh, lecture by one of my fellow uh, lecturers at the university of new south wales several decades ago back in the late 80s when i was doing my uh, my master's degree and i was a lowly tutor um he gave a fabulous paper about pricing of uh, fossil fuel resources and it tended to be there was nolan i can't think of his first name but he's a good bloke um, see, and it was a very fascinating paper. And I asked him well, what is the reference for it. It was actually his his master's or PhD thesis. Uh, but and what it implied was a, a gradually increasing price over time as the resource diminished. And then I said well, that's an interesting model. He said, "Yeah, but it's not reality." He said, uh, uh, "The uh, what happens is is that you try to flog as much of the stuff as you can before, uh, you, you, if you have a, a resource like that which is going to be depleted over time, there's real pressure to make sure you flog a lot of it." Before um, anything disastrous happens and therefore the the pricing is completely different to this model and when you have private ownership of resource like fossil fuels then the interest is for the uh, for the owner to get as much of it out as they can and therefore Mm -hmm. then that's what we're seeing with the way the oil companies are behaving and the coal companies and so on they are fighting against the idea that we shouldn't use it at all but they're only only doing that because the demand is there of course, no, no, no. They'd be, they, they're creating they the demand. demand. Mm. You know, they they want that demand to exist. They, you know, if they if they could, if they could you know, assassinate Elon Musk or blow up a gigafactory, they'd do it. Um, it's it's not that they you know they're just responding to something passively. The same as cigarettes, you know they they, they want to continue demanding this stuff. That's I think that's one of the things behind the the the, the fall of the late lamented how good is Morris, Scott Morrison government in Australia. Do you see even the French are celebrating that Morrison lost this election? It's wonderful. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they 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 just want to pump out as many coal mines as as many as possible because their wealth comes from the ownership of that particular resource. So you can't just say that you by, by privatizing you'll solve the problem. By privatizing, you might amplify it because with this you know re- restricted supply. Uh, resource it's in your interest to flog as much of it as possible and you therefore undermine the health of the rest of the society. Well one great example I've seen of the commons at
0: work sort of and this was in the 80s I drove up through the middle of Australia and stopped off at Cooperpedia. I don't know if you've ever been there which is uh, where they dig for opals and basically the regulations are that I think anyone could dig I might have changed now but back then anyone could dig for opals Uh, the, the rules were you couldn't go close to the highway obviously because they didn't want that Mm -hmm. to collapse and you had to uh, steer clear of where your neighbours were digging because otherwise they'd come around and smash your face in. I think that's basically mm. the, uh, the the rules of it all uh, and yeah, so they've got all you know the the ground is hollow, people just digging holes everywhere. Some of these holes have then been filled in and uh, have been plastered I should say and turned into underground hotels and underground houses because it's so hot there that people live underground in the holes they've dug while they've been mining for opals and there's this, this, this whole community I don't know if they're getting many opals out now but there's this, this community um, that had developed there and lived there and earned a living Without regulation. In fact, there was, uh, you know, I remember uh, meeting a girl there who was um,
1: a very attractive girl. She was. Uh, you I, was know, about, I was about to research this pre- before your marriage. Uh, before my, my marriage, I was a
0: single guy. I, I loved the way the dust caught in her hair, caught in the sunlight. I remember that. But she'd never been. Oh my God, how romantic! <laughs> exactly, Thank She me. was just everything was covered in dust. Uh, I can't imagine you'd, <laughs> live, you'd live much beyond thirty-five if you lived there all your life because your lungs would just give in. But um, yeah, but that was an interesting place where. <laughs> was actually no regulation and everyone just got on with it. But I couldn't help but, I mean it may be be very different now but I can't help wondering how much that society would have developed actually if there'd been a uh, you know, was that the best way forward I mean, is that that was just an open commons approach, or would it have been better if there was a company in there that was mining for opals and employing people and building houses? I don't know. Perhaps that would have been a better outcome.
1: Yeah, well, if you, when if you look at uh, at mining, I mean, you get the, the gold mines in California, the gold rush in California, and uh, and uh, the uh, was it the Yukon. And the gold rushes in Australia and so on, uh, you, they all led to various forms of conflict between different social groups and how they mm. approached the mining. So the Westerners were in there you know, individually digging holes and the Chinese were there making a collective enterprise and doing far more effective uh, mining of the resources than, the, than <coughs> the, uh, the whites were doing. And you had racial conflict coming out of it. So, um uh, you know, there aren't, aren't particularly good stories about exploiting free resources amongst humanity.
0: Yeah, and I guess that, you know, we, we could take this uh, definition of what the commons is in all uh-huh. sorts of different directions. Like, for example, the uh, uh, collective human consciousness uh which we could argue is a sort of commons and uh, maybe that's being taken over by uh, in some places cases by Rupert Murdoch for example so if you if you think about uh going back to the commons where you've got uh, a whole load of cattle grazing and then all of a sudden Rupert Murdoch brings along his own cattle and uh they kill off all the other cattle he's left uh with a with a monopoly i mean is that the same thing happening in our minds where we are losing that uh, you know that, that that the advantage of the commons because of uh, lack of competition uh, i might be stretching the analogy a bit far here but i mean it does show the need in newspapers and in the commons you know you need that regulation so that it works mm. to the benefit of everybody we want a free and open or oh, you
1: need a community which actually collectively controls its its long-lived resources and that's I think that's a, that's the distinguishing point. I'm quite happy to have competitive provision of food and things like that and i remember like straight australian universities i can vividly remember the difference between when the canteens were owned by the university it administered them, and when they when they let small shop owners come in and start cooking locally the change in the quality of food was huge uh, that's the sort of thing where you want competitive provision but the other stuff where you want the you know the for example dams to last indefinitely or sewerage works to be working 24 uh, 7 then that's when you don't want private and short term interest getting in the way and that's where collective ownership and community control works better. And I think
0: you 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 made the the point when it comes to the planet about uh, it's the question of the number of mouths, isn't it, at the end of the day so if we go back to the example of William Forsyth back in 1833 if the amount of livestock uh, that was grazing on the common ground was limited not by the number of people wanting to put livestock on there but by the number of mouths that that livestock was needing to feed Uh, then that becomes less of a problem. I mean, the commons becomes more of an issue the more you pile on demand for whatever resource it's providing.
1: Mm. And we're doing that in a grand scale on the entire planet right now. All
0: right, very good. Uh, Good to talk again, Steve. Catch you again next week. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. And uh, we haven't got
1: a clue what we're going to talk about
0: next week, so your suggestions are always welcome. We will no doubt come up with a real beaut. Uh, as they say in Australia. Uh, That's it for this week, though. I'm Phil Dobby, and I'll be back again with Steve next week. Thanks for listening.